Well, we're going to continue in a series uh, that we started several months ago now in 1 Corinthians. And the title of the sermon series, again, was The Answer to Confusion. Uh, The reason we titled it this was because Paul was writing this letter to the churches in Corinth who had a lot of confusion about how to live out their new faith in Christ. Uh, They had faith, but now they were trying to figure out, how does this work? What what does this mean? How How do we do this stuff, this Christianity stuff? Again, they were all first generation Christians, their parents weren't Christians, they weren't raised in uh, knowing Christ or being a part of a church, uh, they weren't even formerly Jews, they had virtually uh, no knowledge before they came to know Christ as their Savior, so they had a lot of questions. But let's just be really honest, we have a lot of questions sometimes too. Uh, so Paul was writing this letter in response uh, to both a letter that they had sent him asking questions and things that he had heard about the church. Some of those he's already referred to. But this, this particular uh, chapter is about a specific question or questions that they were asking, and he's going to address them. So every time you see in this passage quotes, he's actually quoting their letter, uh, asking, you know, saying, you said this, or I agree with you on this because you said it, or whatever. So when you see those quotes in the passage we're going to read, you're going to know uh, that that's actually from their letter. What we're going to talk about today is this, love balances knowledge. Love balances knowledge. We're going to see that there's an answer to questions surrounding how to practice the theological truths that we know. Now, as we grow and we become more knowledgeable about what God wants from us, how does that really look in practice? What does that, what is, how does that work out in our lives? Listen, Christianity is not some a philosophical group of thoughts. Christianity is a real-life relationship with the living God that should work out in our lives and be very practical for us to follow him. Now, the specific question the church was asking is this. So, Paul, since we possess true knowledge about God, meaning that idols don't, uh, that represent false gods don't really exist, can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to them? Well, that seems like a logical question for first-generation Christians who didn't understand. They're basically saying, hey, listen, since those guys don't exist, can we eat it? Is it all right? Now, the culture that they were in was surrounded by many false gods. And many of these temples to false gods, they would take animals and they would sacrifice them to the false gods. And then, of course, they would sell them in the marketplace and, and make money from that. And so they were saying, hey, if this animal was taken into this temple of a false god and sacrificed, and then it was out in the marketplace, can we buy it? Can we eat it? But that wasn't all. There were actually uh, some of the temples that had kind of a false god restaurant. And uh, I'm sure they didn't title them that. Nobody would ever come. But the churches, the temples themselves had restaurants where people could actually come and eat, pay money and eat the um, food that had been sacrificed uh, to idols. So they were asking all these kind of questions about what do we do with this? How do we, how do we live this way? What do we, is it okay? Is it not okay? We're trying to do the right thing, Paul. What do we do? And that's the question. So as we grow more knowledgeable about what God wants from us, how does it look? That's really their question. Uh, while we don't have this specific issue, I, 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 would, I would bet that most of us don't have to worry this week about uh, going to Price Chopper and, and getting some hamburger and going, oh, wow, should I find out who this was sacrificed to before I eat it? Is it okay? Is it not okay? We don't have that issue, all right? But listen, there are timeless principles that Paul's going to talk about in this issue that I think are incredibly applicable to us and many of the issues that we face 
fact, what I'm going to do today is take uh, the issue that they're talking about and read what Paul says, and then I'm going to apply that principle to two specific cultural situations that we either have dealt with or are dealing with or will someday deal with or at least know about and hear about. Okay, the first one is this. Uh, some would say, some Christians would say that God wants us to dress in our best to come to church because we represent him and he deserves our best. Now, I was raised in a church like this, and they told, listen, you, you need to go to church, you wear your Sunday best. We actually had clothes in our closet that were our Sunday best. We didn't wear them during the week, you know, unless there was a funeral or a wedding. But other than that, you wear your Sunday best, because you save your best for God, and, and go to church and just make a good impression on him. That was what we were taught. We're going to take that principle and look at it and what Paul's talking about. Uh, the other principle we're going to look at is that some Christians would say that drinking alcohol at all is sinful and should never be used by growing discipled Christians. That people who are really growing in Christ should never participate in the drinking of alcohol. That's not, don't, that's not a closed issue. We're going to take that issue and we're going to look at it as Paul applies these timeless truths, okay? So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 1 through 13, here's what Paul writes. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and here he's quoting them, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." Now, Paul was not advocating uh, to be vegetarians, but he was saying there are some circumstances where I won't even eat a good steak. Now, let's see what they are, okay? And the first point we see in this passage is this, that love balances knowledge. Same as our title, love balances knowledge. Look back at verses one through three. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, again, he's saying, this is what you quoted me, all of us possess knowledge. He's agreeing with them. We do. This knowledge, however, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Paul says, listen, we know the truth about some things, and especially about idols. These gods are not real. It doesn't matter, you know, if you put a stake in front of a, a wooden idol or a golden idol and you, you know, say some words or whatever, it doesn't do anything to change the stake. It doesn't. Nothing, nothing spiritual happens because that's a false god. But then he goes on to say, listen, but this knowledge all by itself about anything just brings about conceit. He says it puffs you up. Now listen, probably in our minds right now, somebody has popped into our mind, right? Have you ever known anybody really knowledgeable about a subject and, and more than anything, they want you to be impressed with their knowledge and so they tell you, they tell you how, how much they know about it. They bore the pants off of us because they just can't stop talking about how incredibly smart they are about this one topic. And what he's saying is, folks, even spiritual maturity can be like that. If we get to the place where we are talking about our spiritual maturity or we're using this great knowledge just to be smart, just to share with everybody how incredibly learned we are, we're not really very learned at all. When we know the spiritual truth about things and we express it like, like nobody else can match our, our intellect, it can't hardly be heard by others, folks. It doesn't benefit them. It only strokes our egos. It only makes us feel good about ourselves. It doesn't make anybody else feel good. What he's saying is, listen, when we have knowledge alone, we're kind of out of balance. When we have this knowledge and it puffs us up, it, it makes us feel important, it, 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 it irritates other people, and it harms our relationships. He's saying, listen, knowledge isn't bad. Listen, Paul supports knowledge. He encourages people to grow in their understanding all the time throughout all of his letters. Listen, we should grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. We should study his word. We should spend time with other believers. We should spend time in fellowship, and we should gain more understanding of how to love him but all of that must be balanced by love. All of that has to be balanced by love. So all of our knowledge about spiritual things should strongly be balanced by love as our motive. So how do we apply that to these two examples that we're going to follow through? Well, while the Bible does say to dress modestly and appropriately when it comes to dress at church, it does give us some parameters there is no scripture anywhere that encourages us to wear suits or dresses to church to impress God. It doesn't exist. That's the truth. And by the way, we don't have time to look at all the verses about all these topics, but if you want them, I'll send them to you. You can discuss them in your community groups. Community groups should be a lot of fun this week, I gotta tell you. All right? That's the truth. On the second subject, while the Bible does specifically say that drunkenness or drinking enough to have your mind influenced or affected is sinful, the drinking of alcohol in and of itself in the Bible is not a sin. In fact, Paul encouraged, uh, or he may have said he was, he was an example of someone that drank a little wine each day for his stomach. And, and by the way, occasionally you'll get some weird book from the Christian bookstore that says, hey, just, uh, just know this, that none of the alcohol in the Bible in the New Testament had alcohol in it. None of the wine had alcohol in it. That is complete rubbish, okay? I just turned British for a moment. That's, I'm thinking about the mission trip. Because complete rubbish, all right? 
Okay, that's ridiculous. Of course it did. In fact, if you look at where Jesus did his first miracle and he turned the water into wine, they said, hey, wow, it's very rare for somebody to bring the best last. Because mostly what people did was they give their best up front, which means the highest in alcohol content. They give the highest in alcohol content first. Then when everybody was drunk, they'd bring out the cheap stuff and nobody would know any better. But they said, wow, Jesus turned this water into wine. It's the best. All right, so just, well, that's enough of that for now, okay? But that's the truth about uh, a biblical view of alcohol. But don't close the book there. We're not finished with that subject yet. Now that Paul has established this universal principle, this universal principle that all knowledge should be balanced by love, he supports the supposition that the Corinthians made and he expressed, to, and he expressed it back to them. Okay, when it comes to meat offered to idols, they're absolutely correct in their understanding. They're absolutely correct in their knowledge. You are correct. Uh, uh, meat that's been offered to idols doesn't mean anything to the meat because there are no idols. There are no idols that are true gods, all right? So he's got the, they've got the uh, knowledge part down, which many times we have down. But let's go on to see what he says next. Next he says, idols are not real because there is only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Here's why. They are not true. Look at verses four through six. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul agrees with what they said. He said, you're exactly right. He's confirming again their knowledge, saying your thinking is just right about this so far. All right? He's saying since there's only one God and one Lord Jesus Christ, that means that the other gods worshiped and who have food dedicated and sacrificed them don't exist. They don't mean anything. So he's saying there's nothing wrong with your knowledge. It's right on track. There is one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, as a side note, it's not the main focus of this sermon or this passage, but on a side note, folks, we should pay attention to that. And, and young people in this room, you should pay really close attention to that. There are actual confessing Christians in our culture who believe that there are many ways to God and many paths to him. But folks... If they say that they're a Christian, but they believe there are many other paths to God, they don't really understand the gospel. They can't really be connected to God through his son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus said there is one way to heaven, and I'm it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there is one way to God, only. We can never compromise on this subject uh, not in the, uh, not as a matter of, of tolerance, not as a matter of love, not as a matter of anything else that anybody wants to label it. Jesus is the only way of salvation. But let's move on. So here he says, even first generation Christians realize and confirm that there's only one God. And you're right. The question is, is that right knowledge being applied correctly or being motivated by the right thing? Or is it simply knowledge that's puffing up? Now, let's think about this for a moment. The logical th follow-through 
or the logical conclusions with just the knowledge, that that out-of-balance thinking, just the knowledge and no love, we would see it would kind of guide us to be a person who could eat whatever meat was sacrificed to whatever God anytime they wanted. In other words, green light. If, if, a, if a food's been sacrificed to an, an idol, a false god, since he doesn't exist, I'm just green lighted to do it because I know better. There's, those gods don't exist. But Paul's saying, wait a minute, don't get ahead of yourself. We got to think about the motive here. Before we move forward, let's apply the truth alone to our two situations. Since God is not impressed with us dressing up, we should just wear whatever we want to church or any other church because we understand correctly that we have freedom in Christ to wear what we want to wear. That's the extreme view of that right thinking. Stay with me. The extreme view of the right thinking when it comes to alcohol is that we should be able to drink alcohol anytime and anywhere as long as we don't break the law the, the, the man-made law, and don't drink enough to have it affect our thinking at all. By the way, don't ever assume that biblical drunkenness is equal to American legal drunkenness. The Bible's very clear that if this begins to affect your thinking and you are not controlled by the Holy Spirit, but you are controlled by this, uh, and by the way, alcohol, drugs, whatever you, wanna, whatever you put into your body, if you become controlled by it and your thinking becomes controlled by it even a little bit instead of by the Spirit of God, you're biblically drunk. doesn't care what number you blow into the machine, all right? Right conclusions are not always the answer to right knowledge alone, you see. It needs to be motivated by something. So now Paul's going to apply this love-balancing principle. He's going to apply it, and they're going to see that there's a different conclusion. He says, listen, do not use your freedom to become a stumbling block to your brother. Do not use your freedom to become a stumbling block to your brother. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. Again, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. He says, do not use your freedom to become a stumbling block to your brother. He says, listen, some of the brothers around you are new in their faith. They don't yet understand that they can't do this. They haven't yet figured out this whole thing. By the way, those of us who are following Christ, while we're all on the same journey, that doesn't mean we're all at the same point in the journey. So there are always people that are coming to Christ new that don't understand the things that you've been taught, that I've been taught over years maybe. These were former idol worshipers. He's saying, listen, before they came to know Christ, they were idol worshipers. They gave their heart to these idols. They always thought this act of eating this meat was some kind of a worship to a false god that they were honoring. They just don't know any better yet that they shouldn't be doing this. 
And then he goes on to say, listen, eating the steak is not going to hurt you or help you. It's not going to affect your relationship with God at all. But if those who are weaker see you and their conscience is hurt because of it, they will come under the impression that even worshiping other gods is okay for a Christian. And it's not. He's saying you're going to lead them down a primrose path without even intentionally doing that. Now, the most important line, the most important uh, uh, sentence in this entire chapter is verse 9. He says, be careful that this right you have doesn't become a stumbling block to your brother. Listen, as Christians, we have incredible freedom. Incredible freedom. We are free from the law of the Old Testament. Do you realize that? We are free from many, many things. Now, Paul's going to go on in 1 Corinthians later before you go, oh, wow, I got a green light this week to do anything I want. No, not, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. But if our freedom, our spiritual rights, because of accurate and godly doctrine that we understand brings confusion or hurt to another believer, not people who are far from God, but another believer, we should let love rule over our freedom. Do you hear that? So when we have freedom to do something, if it's going to hurt someone or confuse them or, or, or we're going to come off as some uh, you know, pious you know, jerk because we know so much about God that they don't know yet, Paul's saying, let your freedom go. Instead, love them. Love them. Now, how does this apply to the two cultural examples we're looking at? Well, here at Fellowship of Grace, we kind of live in a place where the misunderstanding about dressing up to impress God is not followed. We don't do that here. While we believe that Christians should always dress appropriately and with modesty, as the Bible teaches, we don't wear suits and we, ladies don't wear dresses to impress God because he is not impressed. He is not impressed. However, we do exercise this love principle within our freedom to wear what we're comfortable with. Now, how does that look? What does that mean? Well, first, if you feel the need to dress up, go ahead. If you want to wear a suit, you can do that here. If you want to wear a dress, as long as you're a woman, you're, yeah, that's okay here, all right? You go right ahead. You go right ahead. We, we don't put barriers on those things. We offer freedom. But when we go on a mission trip, or I go as a guest, or any of our other pastors go on a guest, or we go as a team, as a guest to another church, where they may not live under this same freedom and understanding, we dress up to their level. You got that? Listen, if, 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 uh, if we go on a mission trip to a church and that church isn't as free as we are in this area and they have this kind of, whether it's cultural or whether it's you know, passed on through generations, but they dress up for church. I'm not gonna go in there and say, hey, I hope, I hope you like my jeans. I'm here to set you all straight because you're a bunch of knuckleheads. You don't really know the freedom of Christ. Let me just straighten you out here. We don't do that. That would be motivated by knowledge alone without any love. Instead, we say, listen, okay, I have the freedom to dress this way at Fellowship of Grace. I'm not offending anybody. I mean, listen, folks, this is as good as I can look. That's it. Okay, this is the best I can do. 
But here's the thing. When I go to another church, if I have to wear a suit, I wear a suit. If I have to wear dress slacks and dress a business casual, I dress business casual. I do what's appropriate to them because I love them more than I am going to insist on my freedom in that area. As the pastor of this church, I'm still conscious of what I wear to preach in. There's a different standard, I think, for me up here than for you. In the summer when it's 105, I don't wear cutoffs. Okay, I don't wear flip-flops up on the stage. Not because I'm biblically compelled to, but because I am compelled by love not to create a barrier to others where they would be offended. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I came in to preach someday in a, in a tank top and cut off some flip-flops, some of you would probably not stay. I don't want to offend you that way. I love you more than that. Now, while I would be biblically free to do that, and I've not broken any uh, biblical law or biblical command, I certainly have broken this command of Paul to love above my freedom. Now, when it comes to drinking, we believe here at Fellowship of Grace, the biblical view of alcohol, but just because we have freedom to drink it doesn't mean we always have a green light to do it. Here's how it applies for me individually. I don't drink any alcohol at all. So that whoever sees me out to eat or if they come to my home and get into my refrigerator or whatever, and you're welcome to do that as long as I'm home, okay, they don't get a wrong impression that I believe there's a green light. Listen, if somebody uh, who has struggled with alcohol for a long period of time comes to know Christ as their Savior, they join Fellowship of Grace, and then they see me out at uh, dinner having a beer, they're going to go, oh, Pastor drinks too. I can drink. Awesome. And they may struggle with that. It may be a real uh, uh, stumbling block for them. It could really kind of ruin their lives. And you will never find alcohol in my home or in my refrigerator, except for that one exception where I won that free bottle of champagne on a cruise and it sat in our refrigerator for two years and went bad and we poured it out. That's the only exception where you'll see that, okay? So I do those things. I, I, I'm not biblically uh, uh, conforming, but I'm conforming to love. Now, freedom, if you've been really excited about this uh, sermon so far because you hear all this stuff about freedom, freedom in its extreme forms many times, many times, many times leads to sinfulness. In other words, if you take this uh, principle of dress you say, hey, God doesn't care what I wear to church, so uh, uh, you know, in the summer, I'm going to come in a Speedo. My wife's going to wear a bikini because we're going to Oceans of Fun right after church. Bad idea. Inappropriate. Not modest for church. You see, if you take that, that freedom principle and you swing the pendulum to this extreme level, it gets out of whack. And by the way, that's, that's not loving to anybody. Guys, just don't wear a Speedo anytime. That's not loving to anybody, Okay. And when it comes to alcohol, if you say, hey, listen, the Bible says it's okay to drink alcohol, so I'm just going to drink myself silly all the time. Well, that's obviously against God's word. That's obviously not beneficial to you. And it's going to hurt people around you, and it's going to damage your relationships. So you see, while we have freedom to do many things, Paul's saying, listen, guys, this is not about how much I can do because I'm free. This is how much can I do and still be loving to everybody around me. To not be a hindrance or a stumbling block to anybody else. So here's the big takeaway 
from chapter 8. Grow and learn God's word as a Christian. Know what he really says about things. Study his word. Spend time with him. Not just what some Christian meme says on Facebook or Twitter. I think too many of us are getting our theology from Facebook these days. Okay? I want you to see here this last principle because it's very important. What Paul says is sinning against your weaker brother is sinning against Christ. You're not just sinning against another Christian. You're sinning against Christ himself. Look at his wording. Verses 12 and 13, he says this, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll just never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He's saying, listen, if this really hurts people, if this really leads them astray, I I will become a vegetarian. I I will. I'll give up any of my freedoms if it blesses and benefits other people. If it becomes a hindrance to them that I'm doing something I'm free to do, I'll just stop doing it. Because my freedom is not more important than loving them. Listen, spend time, understand God's word, get real knowledge about God and who he is and what he wants from us. But then always exercise this knowledge and our freedom within the bounds of love. Blessing them, encouraging their faith, not bringing confusion or harm to their conscience. That's what Paul's talking about here. When he talks about love balancing knowledge, He's not down on knowledge. He's for knowledge. What he's saying is when you realize that you have freedom to do things, there are people in your church, there are people around you spiritually in your lives, believers, that are not as far down the path as you are. And if they have put some constraint on themselves that's not biblical, but they've done it, just go along with it because you love them. Now, that doesn't mean to be wacky and, you know, every person that comes into this church as a guest gets to dictate what we do and where we go and what we look like and how we do things. No. But he's saying, listen, if you're in in relationship with these people and you know this is going to hurt somebody because you have the freedom to do this, don't demand your freedom. Instead, be motivated by love. I think that's a great principle for us. It applies, as I was thinking this week and thinking about what examples I should use, I thought of about 100 of them. You know, when I was a kid, uh, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, I mean, my parents, if I even suggested wearing jeans to church, uh, they would freak out, even on Sunday night. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear them on Sunday morning, but even on Sunday night church, they would freak out. Because to them, jeans were a sign of rebellion. Now, I, I don't think anybody thinks I'm rebellious against the Lord because I'm wearing jeans. That doesn't even, see, it doesn't work out in our culture. So these things do kind of change. Listen, morality doesn't change. Sinful behaviors don't change. But the way they work out in real life, some of these things, it does change over time. When I was a child, you couldn't uh, uh, go to the grocery store on Sunday. It wasn't open because they sold alcohol. I remember my dad, Saturday night, he'd run to the store for bread and milk and whatever it took to keep us alive through Sunday because there was nothing to get on Sunday. Then they opened, but there was these big, uh, you know, tarps uh, over all the alcohol. Some of you that are in my generation or a little older, you're shaking your head. You remember those? You, you, you go to the store and you can get groceries, but you can't buy alcohol on Sunday. And now it's just a free-for-all. Okay? And so we, we've got to understand how these things apply in our lives. Culture changes, application changes, but the principle of loving 
people and their faith more than our freedom is universal. So, you know, it, it, it applies in every situation. And if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, we've got to be motivated by love. God's motivated by love. In fact, the Bible says he is love. He loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. We sang about it today. We've talked about it. He saw us in our sin, knew that we couldn't fix it ourselves, knew that we hadn't, uh, had no way to pay for our sinfulness. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And simply by putting our faith and trust in what he did and what he did alone to save us, to forgive us our sins, he will do that for us. And if you're here today and you've not done that, please talk to somebody before you leave today or uh, on, the, on the back of that card or on our app. Just check the boxes. I want to talk to a pastor. I want to give my life to Christ today. Uh, don't leave here without letting us know that so that we can help you.